0: From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot, And I'm Jim
1: DeRogatis. You may not know the name Klaus Vormann, But you've heard his bass on Imagine, seen his art on the cover of Revolver, and heard his production on Da Da Da.
2: Every time, if it was Carly, if it was John, if it was George, whoever it was, we all were friends. And that is something I miss to the very day.
0: Plus, we'll examine whether it's okay to enjoy good art made by bad people. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, this week we're going to talk to musician and graphic artist Klaus Vormann. Now, you may not have heard that name before, but you've definitely heard him playing on iconic songs like John Lennon's Imagine, Carly Simon's You're So Vain. He also was a graphic designer. He designed the album cover for the Beatles' Revolver, one of the greatest albums of all time. Oh, yes. We're going to talk with him a bit later, but first, a conversation about art versus the artist.
1: Yeah, Greg, it's a complicated topic, and we are revisiting it because of the explosion of the uh, docuseries about R. Kelly, Six Hours, aired on Lifetime. A uh, tremendous amount of respect I have for the filmmaker Dream Hampton. Uh, she charts the sexual, verbal, and physical abuse of young black girls at the hands of R. B. superstar R. Kelly for 30 years. It's based on 18 years of my reporting. I'm not in the film. I have a book coming out about R. Kelly called Soulless in the Fall. Um, I think the thing that spurred this attention was two articles in 2017 that I did for BuzzFeed. Uh, he was acquitted on 14 counts of making child pornography in 2008. You know, Greg, he never sold more records mm-hmm. than he did in the six and a half years between his indictment and his acquittal.
0: And still selling out shows around the world as well.
1: Yes, Greg, the conversation we had in 2017 two years ago was important. Then I think it's even more important today. We're going to revisit it and this question of can we separate the art and the artist? And are we somehow complicit if we enjoy art made by people accused of doing awful things?
0: Yeah, this is a story that is not new, Jim, in terms of separating the art from the artist. It is something that uh, is part of all art forms, really, and certainly rock and roll in the rock and roll era. We're going back to the days of Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Uh, controversial figures, important artistic figures, uh, whose troubled personal lives, uh, you know, we have to deal with when when discussing their art. Uh, We certainly wrestle with this issue all the time. And we're going to be talking about it today. We're joined by Britt Julius, a Chicago journalist who has written for the Chicago Tribune, Esquire, Elle, and others. Thank you for having me. And Mark Anthony Neal, a professor of African and African-American studies at Duke.
3: Hey, great to be on.
0: Let me
1: start with a quote by Oscar Wilde, and I want to get both of your reactions to it. So Oscar Wilde, the great critic and philosopher of Victorian England said, uh, I'm paraphrasing because he was talking about books, but he said, Art is neither moral nor immoral. It is merely good or bad. So, Britt, do you buy that? Is there a moral core to art?
4: I think so. I think that... um I think not all art operates uh, under a moral core, uh, but I think that it it exists. I think that especially you know art that is maybe dealing with uh, issues of feminism or race or gender, things like that. I think that that's sort of operating under um, the idea of trying to you know get at the root of individual rights and, you know, sharing people's perspectives and and things like that. So for me, I think that, you know, it can, you know, and it should maybe have a moral core, but it doesn't always have that.
1: Mark, uh, you've been wrestling this with this for your entire critical and academic career. So moral or no?
3: I, I have to agree with, with Oscar Wilde. Right? I think I think art is art. I think morality plays into it in terms of what we're going to do with that art, how we circulate that art, what kind of meanings we derive from that art. Um, I I always like to think that the art is pure. The artists are not pure.
1: No, they're um, human the beings. Itself, no, no human right, being right. is pure. Right. <laughs> Right. Uh,
3: but the art is an, is an expression of this particular person, this particular entity of being trying to express something artistic. Of course, everything that gets expressed is an art, and, and that's a, another part of the conversation, right? Mm. Who gets to choose what is art and what isn't? You know, I've been wrestling with Kelly as I wrestled with Miles Davis, as you can wrestle with Marvin Gaye. Um, James Brown. Know, yeah. James Brown. I mean, I mean, there's no defense of Kelly, uh, but Kelly does exist in a, in a fundamentally different, you know, media context um, where we know so much more about R. Kelly and, and in some ways, because he has let us know so much more about R. Kelly than we would ever know about, you know, Marvin Gaye and James Brown or Bill Withers, you know, beyond what would have been a Jet Magazine article, you know, mm. 35 years ago. Very often when I look at Mr. Kelly and and what he individually represents, it's as much an indictment of who he is as a human being as it is for people who have supported him. And and, and that's where, you know, for me, it was the final break. Um, I'm one of those folks who actually thinks that when you look at his body of work, there is some art there, right? This sure. isn't just a dude who was trying to make hits. Um, but at some point, the fact that he becomes such this compelling, compelling figure that folks continue to go back and support him, that's as much an indictment about us and, and what we're willing to accept in our artists as it is as much an indictment of who he is.
0: There's this uh, area, in especially in popular culture, I think, where transgressive behavior uh, is expected sometimes, even condoned or championed, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You're cooler because of that. You are more authentic because you actually did hold up a a gas station and dealt drugs as a rapper, let's say, or as a rock and roller. uh, Jimmy Page is not diminished at all by the fact that he had groupies and, uh, you know, a relationship with a 14-year-old girl in the early 70s. I mean, back in the day, that kind of behavior seemed to be more a, a a stamp of, oh, that that's true rock and roll. Britt, you you were arguing against that. You said that's you don't you know buy that at all.
4: No. I mean I, I think that made it that might have, you know, made sense, you know 30, 40, 50 years ago when that was sort of how we expected, you know, rock stars to perform. But I think that the way that we listen to and consume music is a lot different <laughs> than it was back then. And I think, you know, in large part they were, you know, a lot of artists like that were sort of playing into specific, you know, tropes and it was presented as a specific way to fit into a rock and roll ideal. I think people aren't necessarily relying on that anymore when it comes to the music that they're consuming, in which case, you know, we don't need to and we shouldn't be accepting, you know, okay, well, they're just gonna do whatever they want to, because that's what is accepted of them as you know a rock musician or as a rapper or things like that at some point we have to sort of ask okay well what are we going to continue to allow to accept is it okay for these people to do it but then in real life it's not okay like where's the line
0: so you're saying you know standards change the way we perceive things change but does that wipe out for you the work of James Brown or Miles Davis or even Picasso who was you know notoriously abusive of of women and and, and his many wives Uh, you know, uh, the, the the list goes on and on of, of artists who have had these really uh, transgressive, even criminal backgrounds, personal histories, and yet made great art, in either in spite of it or because of it. I'm not sure right. what the real answer is.
4: I think that that art that was maybe made before I was sort of, you know, aware of what the artist was doing, for me, I've kind of drawn that line where I'm like, okay, like, I grew to love it and understand it before I sort of had the perspective or knowledge of what was actually taking place. But I think now, as we're seeing, you know, artists even like like the group, you know, um, uh, Power Bottom, Power and yeah. you know, that was that was a very swift sort of, you know, as soon as we found that out, you know, everyone was just sort of like, well. We're done with them. Like, that's just yeah. that's just how it is. So I think that we're learning and we're getting better at it. I don't think that I'm perfect. I don't think that anyone is perfect.
1: So you think people now are more, quote, unquote, woke. Yes. And the internet makes people aware. <laughs> yes. Mark is laughing at that yeah. one. Well, because we have seen in indie rock, we've seen several uh, conflicts. Uh, Power Bottom was this indie rock group who just about put out this record. And there was an accusation of, of sexual assault. And they were dropped by their label and vilified overnight. Um, R. Kelly... The first lawsuit was filed in the mid-'90s.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mark, do you buy that digital culture is changing? You know, the Internet piece is interesting because, you know, there's a whole new generation now that can take him the task for it in ways that— Folks weren't established to be able to do that before. Hmm. I think the classic takedown of Bill Cosby is another example, right? When Bill Cosby becomes a thing again, you know, three or four years ago, that some of us are going like, we've known this for decades, right? Why is this a thing now? Right, right. Well, now because a young generation now is attuning their attention to it, and now they have different a- a- array of tools to be able to use to actually hold folks accountable. So I-, I think Kelly's being held accountable in a way now, right, that he hadn't been in the past.
4: absolutely.
0: You know, my initial instinct is that every anybody can say anything because that's that's our that's our country is built on that. If I can't
1: I would think that all four of us here are free speech absolutists. Our
0: artists can express themselves in any way they see fit, but where do we hold accountable people like the record companies that put that music out, the agents who book those tours, the promoters who uh, you know sign them up to play arenas? The, the ticket buyers themselves who are supporting this artist with their cash.
1: No, there's a haunting um, line in my interview with a woman who had an underage sexual relationship with Kelly who said, everybody in my life, all my friends, my family loved R. Kelly, and I, my favorite radio
0: station was GCI, who played him every half hour. Mm-hmm. Is GCI responsible? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes right down the line. I think everybody has to look in their own conscience, right, Mark? I mean, I, it seems to me like it's almost like a personal decision how you deal with it, it you, you know, as soon as we start imposing like you cannot say this on a record, you know, you must go away and, and Ed, never never record again. You know, we in and trouble. And that gets us
3: back, you know, when he when he finally gets brought up on charges, um, you know, the first line of defense here should have been to go after radio stations that continued to play his music. But of course, there was no larger infrastructure in place to really hold radio accountable in that kind of way. There was no way to target radio with a Black Twitter campaign, for instance, or you know, to do all these kinds of things that social media has given us a tool. You know, so Black radio played what they thought their audience wanted to hear, and they continued to play R. Kelly, and he continued to be something, somebody who was represented as okay within that context, right? Because you could imagine people saying, "Well, like if." Really if he's been accused, why are they still playing his records, right? Mm-hmm. He he must not be right, you know, let's have him his day in court. And and of course the fact that he was acquitted just complicates this even more.
4: I think when it when it comes to to someone like R. Kelly though like from I guess the more I think about it, the more confused I am because it's not like he's releasing a whole bunch of like new music. It's not. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it's not like he, you know, he's at the 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 top of people's thoughts when it comes to you know the best sort of contemporary R right. yeah. no. and B musicians. And yet the radio stations will still play you know Step in the Name of Love as if you know it just came out you know three yeah. or four months ago. He doesn't ago. own
0: the world the way he once did.
4: Exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. It, it's a good point, and you know I think also a factor here is you know you practically grow up with an artist like right. this, right? And he was this kind of celebrated figure uh, in Chicago for a long time. He was, you know, larger than life. He still is to for some people. Yeah, there's, there are murals on the south and side. And once you hit a certain st- level, it's very hard to knock that person way down to the bottom again because they've built up so much. I hate that we use a term like goodwill, but it's certainly a sense of stature. And whereas a band like Power Bottom, they're just starting out. Exactly. Nobody really knows who they are. And they go, Oh, you're accused of sexual assault? No way, man. I'm not listening to another note you play. That should be the response to R. Kelly at this point. You know, I have gotten to the point where I can't even listen to a record of his anymore. I think for a lot of people it's just like it's really hard for them to go take that next step and say he doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Because he obviously did mean something to you, right, Britt? I mean you're Especially He meant Chicago. something to you yeah, at he, some point.
4: He did. I think um it was really hard for me to, to separate um Especially when I was younger, like R. Kelly, the artist from the R. Kelly that I knew, because I was very aware of the trial growing up, and you know, um, its connections, you know, to my school and you know, everyone I knew, especially you know, my sister's age is a couple years older than me. They all had some sort of like R. Kelly story. But you know, I t- also grew up really loving "I Believe I Could Fly," right? Like that was my age group, and so it yeah. was really targeted to me in that way. And I think also in Chicago, we have you know, we sort of obsess over our, our you know hometown heroes or our celebrities in a way that maybe people from other places don't.
1: I believe I can fly. He was collaborating with Michael Jordan. Exactly. They're you know, the two greatest Chicago yeah. heroes of all in the time. The
4: 90s, like it was just, you know, so, but yeah, I think kind of like what you were saying, Greg, you kind of have to work through it eventually. I think for me, the older I got as a woman and having my own experiences in terms of, you know, um, you know, sort of having to face like, you know, sexual assault or sexual violence, that really sort of changed things for me. It's like, why am I supporting someone when I know what my own life has been like, what I know what my friends' life, you know, lives have been like, what they have faced, what they can Continue to face I'm being a hypocrite you know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm completely not showing up for people on the way that I should I'm making some sort of an exception because of a song that's silly that doesn't make any sense and as a music fan there's so many other songs and in, in artists right. that I can enjoy who don't have that sort of that you know that history that violence that baggage that's attached to them as well
1: I always tell my students you know wh- whether it's birth of a nation or or uh, uh, Eminem right it's like look there's no right and wrong in, or wrong in art I just think if you are a thoughtful consumer of culture or just somebody who loves music, all right, well, whatever. If you love this, you must respect it. And part of respecting is knowing what's the story here? What is the message of this art and where is it coming from? Who is the person who's bringing
4: it? Yeah there's so many other artists that I love um, and I love their music because of their autobiographical background you know and how mm-hmm. that sort of plays a role into like the lyrics of the music or you know where they were in their personal life how that sort of like you know developed into like an album or a song and so I really appreciate that you know so I, I, for myself it's like how can I you know in one hand you know really love that and really like appreciate that in an artist but then also you know with an artist like R. Kelly or other artists who are similar to them who you know a lot as we've said of their you know their 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 background sort of plays a role into the art that yeah. they're actually creating It's Yeah, how could I then ignore it? It just, it doesn't make any sense.
0: You know, we have been talking a lot about black male figures in this discussion, Mark and Britt. Um, Stereotyping, how how big of a factor? Racism, how big of a factor is that in the way these cultural figures are perceived versus their uh, white male counterparts, let's say? Britt, what do you think?
4: Um... I think, I think it is, you know, a, a factor. Um, is it um, the the biggest factor? Is it is it the thing that really separates, you know, um, who does sort of, you know, get completely like ostracized or removed from the, the you know, artistic or entertainment community? I don't know. I can't, I can't necessarily say.
3: Right. I mean, but, the, but that's the rub, right? The fact that black men have historically been depicted as sexual predators can't keep us from holding accountable those black men who actually are sexual predators. I think, and very often, you know, some of these figures, depending on how big their celebrity has been, have been able to protect themselves because they knew the community was sensitive to the fact that black men have been portrayed historically as uh, sexual predators. I mean, it's one of the reasons why when you look at folks who close ranks around these figures, you know, what's almost alarming as the R. Kelly case is the fact that in many cases, it's been black women who have closed ranks around him. There have been black women who've been critical of the girls who he assaulted and he raped and he attacked, right, again, out of this idea that we need to protect black men. I'm sure one of the narratives that we're going to deal with now, even as this R. Kelly story continues to be something of significance, is, you know, why are we talking about R. Kelly when all this other stuff is happening, right? Well, because even if we have to fight a fight around the reemergence of white supremacy and Nazis and white nationalists, we still have to make sure that we don't have sexual predators in our community. You know, there's a way in which we have to do both of those things at the same time, right? In fact, it demeans us to not deal with the reality of race as we live race in the world yeah. and not also deal with the fact that there are sexual predators within our community.
0: The question I have as we're going forward from this, have lessons been learned? Is there a sense of we are going to hold artists to a higher standard now? What do you think, Britt? I think going forward, have lessons been learned? Are we going to be seeing uh, more accountability uh, from our artists,
4: I think there will be more accountability, but I think that um, as we've we've kind of seen out and, and we've kind of discussed um, a little bit, it, the way that it plays out is different for different types of artists. So you know, I, from what I've seen, it seems to be you know a lot of male artists they have to really do a lot of damage, you know, um, for for us to sort of take them into account. Versus maybe like an up and coming artist, or even just you know like a like a female pop star, you know, tweets the wrong thing and suddenly people are like you know. Katy Perry is canceled. Party things like that, you know. Griffin uh, takes a
1: photo that's in bad taste, and like, boy, she's vilified instantly.
4: Exactly, and so yeah. So I think that there there will be more, there will be, and there has been more accountability, but I don't think it's going to necessarily play out for every type of artist in the way that it should.
0: Mm -hmm. There's a double standard, I think, right for men and for powerful men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mark, what do you think?
3: I mean, I look at the career arc of someone like. Rick Ross, um, who's really at the point in his career where he can never say anything publicly about women again. Mm. Um, one, because everything he says is so stupid uh, <laughs> and ridiculous. Right. But but systematically, folks have been holding him accountable for some of his comment commentary. Right. So that accountability piece is in place in ways that it hasn't been before. The step is, how do you get beyond that accountability to actually having these larger corporations that sustain these artists also be accountable also. I mean, that's where it's kind of interesting, right? In some ways, Rick Ross is low-hanging fruit. He's not all that important to folks. Right. When you think about artists who are much more powerful and much more visible and and are holding up many more of the bottom lines of so many other corporate interests, you know, that's where it becomes a challenge. Right. You know, it's it's a difference between if we were going after, say, an Ezekiel Elliott in some sort of context, and if we're talking about professional sports versus LeBron James. Right. It'd be so much more difficult to hold LeBron James accountable because, you know, there's just a whole all these other structures in which he matters in ways that Ezekiel Elliott doesn't.
0: That was Duke professor Mark Anthony Neal and Chicago journalist Britt Julius speaking with us in 2017. As always, we want to hear from you. Do you think about musicians' actions when
1: listening to their art? Are there certain musicians that you morally wrestle with? Leave a message on our hotline with your opinion and why at 888-859-1800. Coming up, we talk with bassist and artist Klaus Vormann about his time hanging out with the Beatles and creating art with John Lennon. That's after the break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Cott. And today we are talking to Klaus Vorman, a close friend of the Beatles who designed the cover of Revolver and played bass on many of those musicians' solo albums. He had a front-row seat, Greg, for some of the musical milestones of the 60s and 70s, playing with people like Carly Simon, Lou Reed, Harry Nilsson, Ravi Shankar. The list just goes on and on. We spoke with Klaus via Skype from his home in Germany, and we started the conversation where it all began for him, meeting the Beatles in Hamburg in the early 60s.
2: I was walking down this, uh, the Reaper Bahn and the Große Freiheit, which is in Hamburg, and I heard this rock and roll music out of a cellar window, and I thought I have to hear this. This is I must be live music. So I went down into the club. It was pretty dangerous because there were lots of rockers outside, and so I went down there and sat down. And it was Rory Storm and the Hurricanes with Ringo playing the drums.
3: Get a new wife, run, honey. Oh, the The come to run, honey, honey.
2: For me to see a band actually play rock and roll was the very, very first time. Before that, I might have gone to jazz clubs or went to classical concerts, but I never actually saw a live rock and roll band. The next band that came on was the Beatles. Well, I was just uh, floored. I was just taken by it so much.
1: That's a hell of an exposure after uh, growing up listening to classical music and and jazz to, like, my first rock band. Oh, and and, and, (laughs) it's Ringo with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes and then the Beatles. Yeah. You know, I I think what Americans don't understand about the Reaper Bond, this was uh, prostitution uh, and drugs and insane uh, American sailors uh, looking to cause trouble and get drunk, right? Uh, It was pure punk rock, really, what the Beatles were doing uh, when you saw them. I mean, they were aggressive, right?
2: Yes, I mean, that was pretending to be aggressive. (laughs) They were more frightened than anything else, you know, because when the fights were going on with a bunch of gypsies and some Swedish sailors or something, that was really tough, you know. It was really hard stuff that was going on and uh, they were sort of hiding you know they weren't tough themselves they were not a punk band that yeah. you can't say that they were just a little a little rock and roll band that were played for people to dance i mean they didn't do much more i mean they did a few things on stage yes but they did not throw beer in the audience or do anything <laughs> like
0: that how did you develop uh, because obviously you started out as a graphic artist um, and, and art was your, was your thing, and that's how the Beatles uh, got to know you uh, as an artist initially. How did you develop uh, you know, this acumen as, a, as such a great bass player? You became an in-demand studio bassist in the 70s, playing on, on the Beatles' solo records as well as for countless other artists. How did your interest in the bass develop, and how did you become uh, so adept at that instrument?
2: Well, I guess it, it dates back to the time when I was playing classical piano. I played lots of things, if it was Bartok or if it was Greek or if it was Caciaturiana Ch- or whatever it was. And I don't know, I, maybe I always had this feeling for uh, the, the, the basic roots of something, if it was a rhythm or if it was the actual bass part a song sits on. Oh I always liked that. I didn't even know when I started that that was my strength and that I was really good at it. And I couldn't believe it when people started calling me. I mean when I left my first band, it was the first band it was a really great rock and band we played Petty Klaus and Gibson the band was called. Quick before they We played in clubs and stuff, and then people knew us. We even had a little record out. The records weren't any good, but anyway, people knew us. So then they said, "Oh, come on, play for us!" Like the Hollies, Manfred Mann, John Mayle, the Moody Blues. They asked me to, to play, and uh, I was like, "What's this? Why don't? Am I, why are they all asking me?" Mm-hmm. And I, and I felt really good, and the fact. that I know that now, even if I listen to uh, How Do You Sleep, when I play the bass, it's so simple.
4: You
2: and you shouldn't play more notes. It's it's not necessary. It's an easy-going song. It just floats along the piano. Piano. Uh, um, Nicky Hopkins is playing really nice. and. Drums is going along, and and that was just uh, easy going, and I just played very few notes.
1: Yeah, don't don't play more than it's necessary.
2: Exactly, but if you then have another song where you say, "Oh, now I'm going to play a little more," then then I play more. You know, like sure. on Harry and stuff, I sometimes play a lot. So whatever fits the song. Yeah.
3: Got a big day, sorry,
0: the bassist in the plastic ono band alongside john lennon and ringo starr and i always saw that as kind of a punk rock record I, I, out.
4: I, I, out.
0: I mean the way it was so raw yeah did you feel like you were going in a in a new direction there did you say wow this is really simple this is really basic it's really emotional Uh, What was your reaction to the way that record sounded, the way it was being recorded with John?
2: I felt really, really happy. It was so good, it been because we only did one or two takes of most of the songs. There's mistakes, and it, and it didn't matter. Neither to me, to, to Ringo, too, he just was playing along. And even and the Yoko's record is great, too. I mean, the plastic mm-hmm. Ono band for John, and then the Yoko parts, there's great stuff. And Ringo's playing beautiful, and just to play along it was great, great fun. Not only the playing. But the meaning of the songs and the meaning of that record to me is so important. And I think in a hundred years or maybe even more, this record will be a milestone.
1: One of the things that fascinates me about your career, both as a musician, as an artist, is you are the ultimate collaborator. And yet, you know, the the superstardom, which is unrivaled in history, uh, what the Beatles had, you know, you were never in that spotlight. And I wonder about your perspective about what it does to people. If you envied that did you want to be you know a superstar in the art world a superstar in the music world or you know i mean you're, you're describing Beetle John as as pretty messed up by that whole insane celebrity superstardom
2: yes it would have wouldn't have suited me you know and i never aimed for that i want to be part of a band that plays and if i sing a harmony that's okay but uh, to to actually sing or i didn't write many songs either and I did not want to see It was stand there in the front of, of the stage. I never wanted to. Yeah.
1: Well, Klaus, you are a star to me, and it's because of your graphic art. You know, famously, you designed the cover of Revolver. I have a tattoo that takes <laughs> up uh, three-quarters of my arm of that, that cover. Hey. I probably owe you a royalty <laughs> check. Yeah. <laughs> um, famously you've said of the album covers you did you also did one for the Bee Gees that you would listen to the music and and the music inspired the image uh, that you would create Uh, so what was it like when you first heard revolver you know for no one and tomorrow never knows and this intense uh, you know leap forward for the band on that recording
2: Well, when I first heard it, when John asked me to come down to the studio and listen to what they had on tape up to then, and it was not all finished, but Tomorrow Never Knows was finished, and there were so many great songs. I was so happy, I couldn't tell you. Then I realized this is a step into the future Mm -hmm. for a pop record. You know, people that before heard I Want to Hold Your Hand and all those songs, then you suddenly are in a psychedelia you know just, mm-hmm. it was just ridiculous and then i suddenly became very frustrated maybe you could say so what am i gonna do how am i gonna get the audience that liked the beatles before and this new step in the new direction how am i going to put this onto an a cover Mm. and it was really really hard decision it was very difficult and I knew it had to be extreme I knew it had to be avant-garde and all those things together I had to put on the cover So what I did is I did a few sketches of uh, of different situations, some of them, most of them with the hair. I knew this hair was really important for the general public mm-hmm. anyway. And it was a nice way to to sort of glue the whole thing together. And when I showed them my sketches, they immediately all went on to this one with the four faces and lost little figures, you know, photos. So, I knew the kids want to see lots of photos and they want to see the band. That I knew. I had complete freedom. Nobody told me what to do. Nobody objected to anything I did. So, that was a really lucky situation and uh, they loved the idea and uh, I, I did the cover and it's, it's great. I love it.
1: It's uh, it's such a beautiful uh, depiction of two things, I think, of creativity, creativity exploding from these four collaborators, but also of uh, of stepping outside yourself and going somewhere, you know, as they said in the 60s, I wasn't there, but you have probably heard this phrase, that journey toward the white light. <laughs> you know? so, did you trip with the Beatles? Did you trip with John?
2: Um, not so much. No. <laughs> Maybe a little. No, no. A little. No, I, huh? I, I, I visited him when he was living in uh, Weybridge, when they were doing the uh, Sgt. Pepper videos. I was part of the videos they did, and it was my idea when they see the video of Strawberry Fields. It was my idea with the uh, strings going into the tree, for example. Mm. I'm going to. strawberry field. So that is psychedelia for me enough. And I always had this feeling I don't need any of those drugs. I mean John was completely he was on LSD and he was completely out of his brains and I just watched that and we could talk to each other and and I was sort of at that time trying to help him because he was so helpless, you know, Yoko wasn't even there yet. Mm. So, I knew I had this really very, very uh, sad person in front of me he, he, who didn't know where he was. and. Uh, and then he takes this LSD. I thought, well, that's not necessary. You don't need that. Yeah. You know, that's what I was thinking. I wasn't saying it at the right, time. Right, right, right. But and I, I couldn't influence that. I wasn't that sort of a mate who was with him all the day. I came for visits, and I saw them from time to time. But uh, in general, it was always great to see them. And they, we joked together. We always had a great time. But uh, that far, I did not go. That I say, I'm going to go on the trips with him. I didn't do that. No.
0: You had great relationships with uh, a number of the band members. I mean, you lived with uh, George Harrison and Ringo Starr in in the '60s, right? What was that like? What was that? who who did the cooking? Who did the cleanup at night? <laughs> I bet Ringo never did the dishes.
2: <laughs> Those boys were so busy; it's unbelievable. Uh-huh. If they weren't doing the Hard Day's Night film when I first uh, lived with them at Gre- in Green Street and in London, if they weren't doing the film, they had to go in the studio, and then they had to do a tour. They were busy, busy, busy. I mean, washing the dishes, well, I did it, because they didn't <laughs> <share that. laughs> They were eating fish fingers and, and, and cornflakes, you know, that was about <laughs> all they had.
0: <laughs> you probably had the best, uh, you know, view of the whole thing as it was opening up, as it was... Uh turning from this band that you met at this club in Hamburg to this giant worldwide phenomenon you know what was the view from inside what was the sense of were they were they happy about the circumstances that they were famous and were they able to handle it in a way that made sense or or, or were they kind of overwhelmed by the whole experience what was your take on it
2: well they were really really happy and they couldn't wait to to hear if the record was gonna be a hit or not. Like when I was in Tenerife, they came to visit me And that was just when the second record was out, they could wait to me. Come on, play it. to Let's let's listen to the record. He showed me the record. What do you think? I say, I don't have to listen to it yet. You know, they were really eager and they were happy. They were even sitting in a car waiting if their song was going to be played again. So they really wanted to be famous. And when they got famous, the start, you can see it in the interviews they did, they were really great. They were cocky, they were fresh. You know, when someone said, How do, what do you call your haircut? I'll call him Harry. Right, you know. right, right.
1: What <laughs> kind of girl do you like? Uh, John's wife. John's oh, wife, Tony, That's a client. <laughs> Nobody likes a smart colleague.
2: No uh Those sort of things came spontaneous and fresh. And after a while, you couldn't hear in the interviews. And when people, when they had to be careful, they they watched every word they were saying, it was not the same anymore. Then, of course, to play to audiences, they were screaming all the time. They were treated badly. And that was for them. So they had to stop doing this. And uh, it was not the same anymore. It wasn't that fresh little young band anymore. They were all grown up and they changed. And from then on, to my knowledge, as far as I can tell you, is the band was uh, already departing or going. There are different directions.
1: You mentioned earlier, and I've seen you say this in many interviews, that George Harrison was one of your best friends. What does the world not understand about that extraordinary man?
2: Well, the thing is that people always say he's the quiet Beatle. And I always say, what the bull is that? You know, because he was he was so loud and he was so funny and and he just didn't want to be uh, put it out to the public you see mm. he wasn't like paul who wanted to be up on stage and tell the people the stories and the jokes and whatever he wanted to keep it to himself or tell me or or tell the people from monty python or whatever you know mm-hmm. That's what people don't know. They call him the quiet beetle, and he's he's a, a guru type person. And I don't see that at all. I mean, he was a very very sensitive in a way that, in one day or a certain period of time, he would get up early in the morning and meditate, and his whole day was beautiful. And then a few months later, he's down there sniffing. The Coke, like an idiot, yeah, and yeah. and drinking like a, a I, I couldn't believe it. He he's so uh, good or bad, you know. I was, <laughs> he was yes, that's those people are the ones that are looking for something. He was looking for something to hold on to, and this Indian thing was for him the thing that was he was holding on to if he could hold on to it, if it Mm -hmm. didn't slip out of his hand. There was a train collision in, in Germany, and lots of people died. And he thought, I might have been on that train. You know, he called me on. I wasn't there. We were on on a journey, and he left six messages. Mm. And and I said, Klaus, how are you? Come on, call back, call back. You know. Yeah. So he was very. Um, yeah. Okay. now I'm not gonna say anymore. Getting all upset now. Oh, <laughs>
1: yeah, but uh, you know, they weren't Beatle George. They weren't Beatle John to you. They were my friends, John and. George. And I would have to say that collaborating with them
0: musically, uh, that was something they valued. How did your relationship with John change over the years? And how did you see him changing?
2: John was always frustrated. He didn't know what he was. He didn't who he was. He was frustrated even up to uh, the uh, Sergeant Pepper LP. He did not know who he was. And then Yoko came in the picture, and when Yoko came in the picture, the whole picture changed. It suddenly was this togetherness, and John was not just John, it was John and Yoko. frustrated. He was always searching for something, looking for something, and once he saw Yoko everything was fine. He suddenly was very uh, easygoing, much more easygoing. Of course he always was a little uh, short-tempered, but again still he always had yoga at his side, he was communicating with her and that I thought was great. I mean I for the Beatles fans it might have been a little difficult at times because they lost their John. It was a different John. Mm-hmm.
0: After a break, we'll continue our conversation with Klaus Vormann by talking about his work with Lou Reed and Harry Nilsson. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis, and our guest today is Klaus Vormann. Now, he was a good friend and collaborator to the Beatles, but he also left an impressive legacy as a bass player in the 70s.
1: Can we play with you a bit? Uh, Give us a quick one-sentence impression of some of the people uh, you you perform sessions for. Let's start with You're on Transformer by Lou Reed.
0: (laughs) Oh, such a perfect day You just keep me hanging on You just keep me hanging on
2: David Bowie was producing it, and it was fun because those two got on like the world on fire. You know, Lou Reed, I wish I could have seen more of him. I mean, I was just there and played on a few songs, but we had a great time, and, and I wish I could have seen more of the those guys. And it was always this thing going on with... The, with uh, sex and then, you know, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ruud, my god, yes, he had his obsession. You know more about that than I do.
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I wasn't there. All right, son of Schmilson, you play on Nilson's album,
4: baby, baby, come back. I need
0: you to make a good track.
2: Harry was great. At that time when I met him first, he uh, uh, was very not tall, of course, very thin, and he played basketball. He was a really good basketball mm-hmm. player. And and just to hear the, those songs like Without You, it was just incredible to be able to play on that song. It was just fantastic. <laughs> And it was fun. And there was jokes, and we we just I mean I laughed so many hours together with Harry. it, it, it I can't count the hours. It's it, it but we just hilarious, hilarious. This man was so funny, so interesting, so sensitive. He was a most beautiful person. He was uh, uh, next to George. He was my best friend.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. You played on all these sessions. I mean, you know, we could go on, Carly Simon, Randy I mean, Newman. We could do this all day, yeah. And I got to say, Klaus, what was your Rolodex like back in those days? Because it seemed like you knew everybody. Looking back, do you have a sense of why you got so much work during this period? I mean, it seemed like every record that mattered in the early to mid-70s, you, you played on it. How did that happen?
2: Well, I'm very proud of it. It happened really started when John and George had me play, and then Richard Perry came and said, oh, Klaus, we're going to play uh, for Harry Hewson and Carly Simon, and I'll play you double scale. I thought, oh, that's great. <laughs> Some people even said, if we go got Klaus on the session, we don't have to think about bass playing. <laughs> mm, okay, yeah.
1: Got it covered. Yeah,
2: Never anybody told me what to play. I just sort of listened to the song. I listened to the lyrics. I sort of put myself into this frame and let John or Harry sing the song. And then I did my contribution. And as it happens, it mostly fitted. And that's what was, of course, in a way it was easy for the producers or whoever if they asked me to come. Because then they knew when Klaus was there... It's covered, you know. That's what was, the, what was the case. I'm happy about it.
1: Let me ask you about yet another aspect of your career. You know, in the 80s, you produced the German group Trio. <laughs> yeah. Most people, if they know Trio at all, know Da, 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 right? And it's brilliant, brilliant single.
0: Da, da, da. Da, da, da. Da, da, da.
1: But all of those records that that group made were really cool in the sense that I, I'm also on the other arm opposite revolver, your tattoo uh, Klaus, uh, I have can right So this intense e- explosion of creativity in the psychedelic moment in Germany which arrives late and is derisively called Krautrock by the Brit uh, British press, right you know can and Noi. I mean that stuff is amazing but it's it's not pop. What Trio does is take that, kind of pare it down, make it minimal, and create pop music out of that weirdness. And you're at the helm as producer.
2: Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm happy you know all those bands. You know, Kraftwerk is fantastic. Can was good. There were a whole bunch of really, really great people in that time. But the media killed it. Just the same with Trio. All they played was da da da. Yeah. I felt, my God, I wish people could really listen to that first LP or the second LP. Mm-hmm. It was an incredible. Really, really good band. I wish more people would know about Trio. Well,
1: we'll start the Trio revival here
0: yeah, I hear we... it right. Yeah. You see it
1: I see the through line here uh, in everything you've done creatively. The, the sessions, uh, your your own solo album, your writing, uh, the production work is kind of, I'm going to do exactly what's right for the moment and not more. <laughs> Can't exactly call it minimalism, but it's just like good tasteism, maybe.
2: Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm so happy and in a way proud that I was able to be able to play with all the people I played with. And I must admit, even though they asked me to come down to the studio to play because I was playing good bass, but at the same time, every time, if it was Carly, if it was Harry, if it was John, if it was Ringo, if it was George, if it was Billy Preston or whoever it was, uh, we all were friends. And that is something I miss to the very day. I mean, now I was just in Los Angeles, and I saw Van Dyke and Jim Keltner. Ringo invited us to go for dinner. Joe Walsh was there. It <laughs> A really small group of people sitting there at the Bel Air Hotel, and we had a great time. It was really, really The stories were just as fresh, <laughs> and we <laughs> had so much fun. It was really good.
1: That's why your story is so fascinating, Klaus, because, um, you know, the mythologizing, of the people who love the music, of all of those names you just dropped. You know, so the, you tend to think they're larger than life. But you're getting together, having some drinks with these guys, having dinner, having some laughs. It's like our friends from college, normal people, you know?
2: Yeah, that's exactly. You you look at it this way. You know I, mean? I, I can't... Of course, there's always this little uh, short moment where you think, oh, no, I can't really do that. Like uh, sometimes with Paul, when I see him, it's great to see him, but this man is living on a different planet, you know? And I'm just in a little apartment here in Munich. I have my little art studio. I'm fine in my circle, but I don't really fit into their circle, which does not mean if we see each other... We are just the same uh, people we were before. There is no change.
0: What's the best, uh, you know, one session, looking back on this incredible career you've had, was there one sort of a landmark moment for you personally? It may not necessarily have been the most famous record, but for you personally it was a was an amazing experience to work on a particular uh, record.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. It is a famous record, and that to me is Jealous Guy. Mm. It's just this uh, combination of... Keltner on the drums with john singing the song and the lyrics and me playing my bass part that was not not much but it was very floating along that i sort of that was a moment where i really didn't even know where i was i didn't know what key i was playing in i just played automatically it's like I don't know. That's heaven, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry that-
1: It's been an absolute honor and pleasure talking to Klaus Worman. Klaus, thank you for being on Sound Opinions.
2: It was fun. It was great.
1: Greg, what do we have on the show next week?
0: Next week, Jim, we are going to unearth some buried treasure, some of our favorite new records that are flying underneath the mainstream radar.
1: Download Sound Opinions wherever you get your podcast thingies. The show is produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill. I'm sorry then. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline. 888
0: 859
3: me. New
2: messages.
1: Hey guys, this is Greg calling from Nashville. I'm calling about the uh, iconic beginnings show. The very first thing that popped into my mind. Uh, I'll, I'll put, not just as a strong beginning, but possibly the strongest beginning of a debut album that I can think of, and that's Patti Smith's Gloria. When it comes in, first of all, I think you're not expecting much from from another cover of Gloria, but uh, when she comes in with those lines, it's, uh, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. it uh, I think it still gives me chills, no matter how many times I've heard it, and
0: uh, to make that your first statement on an album, uh, is just a pretty undeniably powerful thing to me.
2: Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Mildner, pot of thieves, wild cord on my sleeve, thick. Heart of stone, my sins, my own, they belong to me. me.
0: Enjoyed the show, like a lot, and uh, talk to you later.
2: Tim and
4: Greg, it's Beth from Naperville. I was just listening to your Great Starts program. I thought it was brilliant that you included the X-Ray spec song, Oh, Bondage Up Yours. But it made me think of another song that came out about three years after that. But from the very first note, you could not, not listen to this song.
2: It's a song called Inconvenience by the Au Pairs.
3: First out is a single, I believe in 1981, before it was on their
4: album, Playing With A Different Sex. There is a song that you can't not notice from the very first note. Thanks very much.
0: Bye. Jim and Greg, this is Nick from Jackson, California. I was recently listening to the episode Great starts and the song that really came to my mind right off the bat was Outcasts B. O. B. from their Stankonia album. And after a quick countdown, Andre three thousand starts his verse like he's shot out of a cannon demanding your attention. And the rest of the song continues at this breakneck pace all the way to the end. Every time I hear it I have to stand up and dance.
1: Underground, underground, when i stop the ground like a big elephants, fence, a silver back around the tank. You can't stop a train. Who wants to don't come unprepared? I'll be there, but when I leave there, better be a hustle name. Brother man telling us it ain't no rain. So now we sit in a drop crotch soaking In a it's just try not to swing. Hit some of our foot without the net. But this we be the year that we won't forget. One nine nine nine. I need anything go. We want to be home.
0: No consequences. Forgive and for live in the princess. Great show, guys. And look forward to the next episode. Thanks.
2: Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Jess Colling from New York City. My husband and I thought a lot about songs with great starts when choosing our recessional song for our wedding. Our walk back down the aisle would take about 15 seconds at most, so we knew we wanted something that started with a bang. Um, and I knew Best of My Love by the Emotions was the one as soon as my husband suggested it. It was a great start to the party and to our lives together. So uh, thanks, you guys, for all that you do. Uh, I always enjoy listening.